Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much uh, that you have sent Jesus Christ, the true Israel. Uh, that Jesus Christ, uh, being that true Israel, is the inheritor of all of your promises and also the one then who secures them for us. Uh, and so we thank you that by your Holy Spirit given to us as a gift, that spirit that indwells us, we are in Christ and are ourselves then Israel. We give thanks for these things and we pray that, uh, that as we continue to wait for Christ to come again, uh, you would gather together, as you have promised, all of Israel to be saved. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so basically what we're doing and why we're doing it is in light of everything that's been going on for the last couple of months in Israel and Gaza, uh, American evangelicals are inclined to make certain assumptions based on what they've been taught in most evangelical churches that uh, the modern nation-state of Israel... Is, uh, is, is in some sense, some way, the special people of God, and, uh, and that as a nation state, they deserve some kind of deference from us, the church, some kind of support. Uh, in fact, it's so deeply ingrained in our American evangelical culture that it is deeply taken for granted, and the idea that I would stand up here today and suggest that it's not true sounds like heresy in the ears of some who've never heard otherwise. Uh, I want to assure you that I come to this understanding together with a great swath of the church throughout history and based upon what we see God teaching in His Word. Uh, dispensationalism, as we've covered, is a system of theology. It's, an, it's a way of reading the Bible and trying to understand all of it together uh, and those who follow that system and believe that that system accurately describes Scripture, they are a people who hold the Scripture in the highest regard. Uh, they believe that it is the inerrant Word of God and fully authoritative. Uh, though we disagree with them on some very important things, uh, we don't question whether or not they are Christians. This, this doctrine is not, uh, I, I would not call this doctrine heresy. Uh, it is not wrong to the point of leading people to hell. Uh, and so we don't, we don't take that step, most of us, uh, and refer to it as heresy, but we do believe that it's mistaken. We, uh, we talked about the fact that dispensationalism's understanding of the identity of Israel is that Israel is an ethnic people and always and only ever will be that ethnic people. In other words, it is not right for any of us who are not Jewish to, to refer to ourselves as Israel or to understand that any of the promises made to Israel in Scripture are for us. If you are a Gentile, those are not your promises. If the promises are given to Israel, they belong to an ethnic people and not to the Gentiles. Uh, that's very clear dispensational teaching. I, I want to absolutely impress upon you that I am not in any way misreading it. I'm not being unfair. For those of you who were here, you know my credentials. I'm a, a seminary, a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate, uh, and that is the great bastion, the city on a hill of dispensationalism, uh, and uh, at least it used to be. Many would argue today it's less so, but uh, I've, I grew up in, uh, in a home that held to this view, and went to the seminary where all of the best and brightest dispensational minds have been trained. 
So I, I understand dispensationalism, and honestly, I find it wrong enough that, that it's not even tempting to in any way misconstrue what they believe. Uh, I can simply tell you what they believe. They will agree that that's true, and you can read it in their books. I recommended one of the first Sundays, uh, at least when we were talking about dispensationalism, read them. Uh, they are unabashed in their absolute assertion, without exception, that Israel in Scripture, that identity, is only Jewish people. That is a, it is a fundamental tenant of their system. That system is the majority view, has been, it's less so now, but has been the majority view among evangelicals for nearly a hundred years. Uh, and it, many of you, if you grew up in a, a Baptist church or a non-denominational church, uh, that's the majority view in those traditions, and even if you never heard the word dispensational, that's probably what your ministers believed and probably what they were teaching. In popular culture, uh, especially in the, the most recent past, it's been the Left Behind books and the movies that were made from the books. Uh, what's being described in a dramatic fashion in a, uh, a fictional narrative is that system, that understanding of what happens in the end to whom and why and etc. When we, and we, uh, by we I mean the Reformed, the, the Covenantal, the Presbyterians, those who follow in the, the understanding, uh, the interpretive um, uh, approach of Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, uh, the, the other magisterial reformers we call them, that first generation or two of the, the reformers in Europe, uh, the, the Church of England briefly uh, during uh, the long Civil War uh, and the, uh, the Westminster Assembly, Scotland ever since then, uh, within our tradition, our understanding of how it is that we read the Bible and what that leads us to in terms of our understanding of it, is that there is only one people of God throughout history. Uh, there, there are not two peoples at one time, there's not two peoples one at a time, right? There's some who hold to dispensationalism, accuse us of a view called replacement theology, that God had the Jewish people who were his people, he rejected them, and he started over again with the church. The church replaced Israel. That's not our view. That's not what we believe. There is one continuous people of God throughout history. One people to whom he has made promises. One people to whom those promises will be fulfilled. And that one people is known variously throughout Scripture as Israel or the church. If this is true, we should be able to demonstrate it from Scripture, shouldn't we? And that's what we've been doing the last week or two, is looking at passages, particularly in the New Testament, uh, that use that label of Israel and apply it to Gentiles. And so um, we've looked at it, so we won't go through it in detail, but turn to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 seems, on the surface, quite clear. We, we don't have to do much in terms of any kind of fancy exegesis or hermeneutics. We just read it. We know that Paul is writing to a church that is composed of both believing Jews 
and believing Gentiles. One of the, the problems we read about in the church, in the book of Acts, in that, those first decades, was the, the church, which initially at Pentecost is, is primarily Jewish, wrestling with what it means for these promises now to have expanded uh, in a way that they, they were always made uh, these promises. They were always for anyone who would believe, but clearly in the Old Testament, it's primarily the Jewish people uh, that are hearing these promises and believing these promises. But when we come to the end of Christ's earthly ministry, and you see glimpses of it in His earthly ministry, when we come to the end of that ministry, that gospel and those promises explode and go out to the world so that they even have their own apostle, Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is going into synagogues around the Roman world, preaching that the Messiah has come, and always being ultimately rejected, taking those few who will believe, and taking the message to the Gentiles in that city, and together with that core of Jewish believers and the Gentiles who gather around, establishing the church. And as the church wrestles, as you can imagine, as the Jewish people wrestle, with this thing that used to just be theirs in a very real sense, but now belongs to anyone who will believe, they're struggling with things like, how does the law apply? What happened to the law because of Christ? What does it mean for us as Jews? What does it mean for them as Gentiles? Uh, circumcision is at the heart of the law. Uh, circumcision is, is the first act, if you will, of coming under the law. Circumcision in the Old Testament is that sign of membership in the covenant community of God, the people to whom He has given the law. And so the first thing you do as a male in that context is you receive circumcision. You are identified as one who belongs to that community, and now the promises are yours, right? God, when He gives that, that instruction in Genesis 17... He uses that strong Hebrew word for forever, olam. When he says, you will circumcise, he says, olam, forever, forever and ever, you will give this sign to your sons, to every male born in your household. How then can Paul say circumcision is not necessary? The Abrahamic covenant still in effect. The New Testament makes this much clearer as well, something we, we have in disagreement with dispensationalists. They would say the Abrahamic covenant is not in effect or it's in effect only for Jewish people. But we see Paul saying that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Well, we've talked about this before, who cares? Why would any of us care whether or not Abraham is our father? It's because the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. So if you would inherit the promises, you must be the offspring of Abraham. He must be your father. And how is Abraham our father? It is by faith. This is what Paul means in Romans 4 when he says Abraham is the father of all who believe. It's in that context, in that struggle in the first century between Jewish and Gentile Christians that Paul, in Ephesians 2, writes this instruction Beginning in verse 11, he says, he's talking to the Gentiles, remember, he says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Now let's just pause right there. Just read that on, on the face of it. What does the qualifier in the flesh mean? What does it mean to be a Gentile in the flesh? 
that you're actually genetically a Gentile. But what's the impact of that qualifier? What does it imply? That there's another kind of Gentile, a Gentile in the Spirit. And indeed, the New Testament will use the word Gentile to describe anyone who doesn't believe. When Paul gives instruction, this sounds familiar, right? Don't do like the Gentiles do, except he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles in the flesh. He's talking about Gentiles in the spirit. You see the Jew-Gentile distinction. It's not even just the word Israel in the New Testament, but the labels of Jew and Gentile now are spiritual labels. And even when they are used in the old genetic sense, they need a qualifier so you understand that that's the sense in which they're being used. Remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, uh, that was what what the, the Jews called themselves in the church who believed that circumcision was still required. They were the circumcision party. And they would, in a derogatory way, refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision you, you've not obeyed the law of Moses. You are outside. You are other. He says, remember, you Gentiles in the flesh, you've been called ugly names by those who insist that circumcision is necessary. A circumcision, he says, by the way, that's made by human hands. It's not a, a real spiritual circumcision. It's a physical one that is of no value. He says, remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Jesus Christ, verse 13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Notice there's two, right? There were There was the commonwealth of Israel and those who were estranged from the commonwealth of Israel. There are no longer two. There's now one. He talks about how Christ here, what he's talking about with all this language of breaking down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances. That's the Mosaic law. In the Mosaic law, God gives instructions, right? Uh, There are certain things you're not allowed to do. If you do them, then you are no longer ritualistically clean and therefore no longer allowed to come into the temple to, uh, to do the things that you're supposed to do. And now you have to go through a process to be made ritually clean again. One of the things you weren't allowed to do was to go into a Gentile's home. Because the Gentile's home is not clean. And by going into it, you become unclean. Paul is saying here, those, those rules that served a particular purpose in a particular time and place... Christ, because of his person and work, he did away with those rules. They no longer apply. He says, um, got to find my place again. He says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, that is Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, Peace is preached to Jew and Gentile, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here's the, 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 the great hammer blow to the idea that Israel and the church are two separate peoples of God. He says, verse 19, so then you, remember he's talking to the Gentiles in the flesh, 
you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now, when he says here, you are no longer strangers and aliens, what did he say above? In what sense were they strangers and aliens? They were strangers and aliens, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. If they are no longer strangers and aliens, then they are now a part of the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 teaches clearly that there is one people of God. And it was always true. It becomes particularly clear and, and it becomes true in a much fuller way at that fulcrum in history, which is the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. But it was always possible for a Gentile to join Israel and become Israel. Look back at Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, we are right there at the, the Passover. And in the Passover, instructions are given. And when I say Passover, I mean the Passover, the first one. Instructions are given uh, in, at the end of 12, verse 43. Look at what's true. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. So we're going to see two classes of people in this text. The foreigner and the native. But look what happens to the foreigner. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. What does circumcision do? It makes you a member of the community. No foreigner or hired work may eat, worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not, and that one house is not a mere logistical instruction. It's one house because there's one people. In one house, you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So who's keeping it? Israel is keeping it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. In other words, nobody's allowed to keep it unless they've been circumcised or belong to a, to, belongs to a household where the males have been circumcised, i.e., identified with Israel. They've become members of the covenant community. Then he may come near and keep it. Okay, but look what happens. You don't now have two classes of people in Israel. There is not the native and the foreigner who receives circumcision and therefore is also allowed to take it. It says, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. One law for the native and the stranger. You see, even in the Old Testament, if a Gentile said, I want your God, the Gentile becomes a Jew. There is no law in Israel for the foreigner. You either belong to Israel and the law is yours and the, the promises are yours and you are Israel, Gentile or Jew, 
or you are a foreigner, and none of it is yours, and you may not participate in the, the ceremonies by which God is re, uh, reviewing, revealing these promises to his people. Billy, was that your hand I saw up? Yes. Yeah, stranger and foreigner are synonymous terms in that text. So, I just I wanted to review and get us back up to this place, right? Uh, and, and we may very well finish with this. I, I don't know how much further you would like to go or we need to go. The intention here was not to do a full-blown uh, series of lessons on covenant theology. We've done that before. We'll do it again eventually. Uh, but covenant theology... Uh, has at its center the person and work of Jesus Christ and the promises that the, the triune God has made to redeem creation and his people. Uh, and the context of those promises is his covenant. He's made covenant with us. And that's why we, we call our, our system of theology, how it is that we come to the Bible and read it and understand it, we refer to it as covenant theology because we believe that that is the the architecture, the structure upon which all of what God has, is, and will reveal about Himself and about us and what He's doing, it's all in the context of covenant. Um, and I'll say this and be done and, and take questions. Uh, everybody who has ever lived belongs to one of two covenants. There's nobody outside of a covenant relationship with God. Every one of us belongs to the covenant God made with Adam. Adam and all of his offspring. What Adam did, he did as our representative, and all of the guilt, uh, all of the, the sin and the consequences, they all come to us because what he did, he did on our behalf. And God made a covenant with Adam. And in that covenant, if Adam would obey the law perfectly then he would be given eternal life. And if he broke the law, he would die. And he broke it. And it not only had an impact on him, it impacted us as well, because what he did, it's, we were as good as there ourselves, like we did it ourselves. This is Paul, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. So, as the Catechism states beautifully, did God leave us in the estate of sin and misery that Adam brought us into? The answer is no. That God was pleased by a redeemer, right? And that's the other covenant. God has made a covenant to deliver us from the wrath and curse that belongs to us because of Adam. And so what Christ does is he fulfills the obligation of the covenant made with Adam. He keeps the law perfectly, and that's, that belongs to us. That's Christ's righteousness. This is why Paul and the New Testament are so determined to communicate to us that if we are in Christ, if we belong to Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ, because that righteousness is required by that covenant made with Adam. But in addition to giving us the righteousness that that covenant requires, he has to remove the curse. And this he does on the cross. And this is covenant theology. That what God is doing is delivering us from the curse of the Adamic covenant or Edenic covenant. 
He's delivering us from that curse and instead restoring fellowship between God and man. All of the language around Luke 1 and 2 about peace, and peace is mentioned over and over in the text. We're going to look at it next week. I I didn't touch on it today. It was in the text, but next week that's the big theme is peace in our final uh, Advent text. It's misconstrued by those who are glancingly familiar with God's Word. God did not promise peace on earth now. Peace on earth did not arrive with Christ in His first coming. What arrived with Christ in His first coming was peace between God and man. That's the peace that comes with Christ's first coming. And at Christmas, this is, this is the peace that we celebrate. Peace. We were, we were opposed to God. We were His enemies. Paul in Romans While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And Paul waxes on about that, doesn't he? I mean, who does that? I mean, you might be willing to die for somebody who's good. You might be willing to die for somebody that you love. Who willingly dies for the sake of their enemies? And this is what Christ has done for us. And in so doing, he has restored fellowship between God and God. And us, and and this is not something God has done, is doing, or will do, sort of willy-nilly in history. He's got some random plan, and he's given us a couple of glimpses of it, and there's some important events that have taken place, and they matter. It all exists within this structure of covenant that God has expressed in his word. And so for that reason, we believe there is one people of God in history. There are not two peoples of God. And the modern nation-state of Israel... And this is, I'm going to come down to actually this final distinction, because this is kind of what everything's been leading up to. The question, turn to Romans chapter 11. The question is, is the modern nation state of Israel the people of God? And we would answer that question, no. But there's a really important distinction that we need to make. And I'll set 11 up here in a second, and we'll finish with that. Um, The question is, we need to make an important distinction between the modern nation-state of Israel and Jewish people. It shouldn't be that difficult a distinction to make. There are far more Jews in the rest of the world than there are Jews living in Israel, right? So Jew doesn't equal Israeli. Those those are not equivocal terms. Jew, Jewishness is an ethnicity. The modern nation state of Israel is a political entity. And what we do wrong as evangelicals, the majority of us, is we, we fail to make that distinction. And in dispensationalism, they believe that in 1948, when the modern nation state of Israel was established, it was the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, unfortunately, the places they go to say this was prophesied are all talking about Christ. And do you see what, what terribly unfortunate thing happens? God is pointing us towards Christ. And in those passages, dispensationalism is pointing us towards a nation state in history. Uh, anything that draws our eyes away from Christ ought to be carefully avoided. 
And so when the Old Testament says, when all these promises are made, look at, um, put your finger in Romans. We'll come back to it. Maybe this is not going to be the last week. Um, I read this this morning during the Lord's Supper, and I made reference to it in the sermon in Jeremiah 33. In Jeremiah 33, this is a passage that refers to a biblical covenant we refer to as the New Covenant. Uh, and all of us acknowledge that there's such a thing as the new covenant. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us evangelicals, whether you're dispensationalists, a covenant theologist, a new covenant theologist, or any other particular variety of theology. If, if you're within the pale of evangelicalism, at least as it was defined 20 or 30 years ago, uh, we all acknowledge there's this thing called the new covenant. Uh, in Jeremiah 33, he's talking about this new covenant. He's making promises about what he's going to do. Now, we, in covenant theology, understand this new covenant as being a part of the unfolding of that covenant, what we call the covenant of grace, the covenant where God promised to deliver us. He says in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I'm sorry, I've got to stop and give you context again. Remember, because I, I, I take for granted sometimes, Jeremiah is a prophet to a people about to go into exile. The southern kingdom, Judah, is about to be destroyed for their faithlessness by the Babylonians, and they will be in exile in Babylon for 70 years before the Persians defeat them and Cyrus, the first great Persian king, sends them back to rebuild. We're right at the, the cusp of that destruction happening. Jeremiah is the prophet who says, the time has come. Destruction is at hand. But he's also, as a prophet of God, telling them that 70 years has been decreed, and then you'll come back, and He's going to restore you. Everything will be made right. So listen to what He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But look at how He characterizes the promise. What promise did He make? In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Who is the righteous branch? Jesus Christ. When is this fulfilled? It begins to be fulfilled when Jesus Christ is born. It's this prophecy, among many others, that Simeon and Anna are so jazzed about, that they're so excited about, that is causing them to praise God and recognize that He's keeping His promises. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, in what days? The dispensationalist wants to read this and say that it's in the days of Judah's restoration to the land, 70 years later. But are those the days Jeremiah is talking about? They're not. It's in the days of the Messiah. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness, for thus says the Lord. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Okay, what man is that? Jesus Christ, the son of David, right? I know that's the, the safe Sunday school answer. It's also right this time. Jesus Christ is that man who sits on the throne of the house of Israel. Does Christ rule only over Jewish people? Is he our king too? And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, to make sacrifices forever. And he goes on in the verses to follow to, to give us these vivid images of how unbreakable his promises are. 
essentially says, if the sun and the moon stop doing what I told them to do, I can break my covenant, i.e., not going to happen, right? So, let's go back now to Romans. In Romans 11, which is a, a key passage for, for everyone, we're, we're all trying to understand Romans 11. Um, and the context for Romans 11, in Romans, Paul's writing to a church he's never been to. He's introducing himself. And he says, this is my gospel. And he, he begins to lay the gospel out. This is why we have the Romans road, right? It, Romans works so well because what we're trying to do in sharing the gospel is exactly what Paul is doing in Romans. He's taking you from the bad news of the fact that all of us are condemned. He, he hits this especially hard in Romans 1 and 2 and into chapter 3, which is where you get, um, you know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's going to begin in chapter 4 to tell us what God has done in order to answer this, in order to rescue us. And he goes on and begins to describe the promises of God and salvation, carrying us through even what, what many will refer to as the golden chain, right? Justification, sanctification, glorification, and all of the elements around that. And he, he comes to this crescendo in Romans 8. Nothing can, can take us away from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson believes it is the greatest chapter in the Bible, certainly his favorite. And it is. It's an amazing chapter. It's also the same chapter that opens, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Definitely worth meditating on Romans 8. Paul, though, in Romans 9, and we looked at this a week or two ago, so again, I'm going I'm to touch on it briefly. We can't go into the same detail. In Romans 9, Paul hits pause on his project. He anticipates an objection from his readers. Paul, that's beautiful. God's made all these promises. But you know, he made promises to the Jewish people as well, and he abandoned them. And Paul says, eh, no. No, he didn't. Uh, the promises were spiritual promises made to a spiritual people. And God has always kept his promises. The mistake you're making in your objection, Paul, and I'm obviously paraphrasing, the mistake you're making in your objection is you're assuming that Israel is a genetic people. It's not a genetic people. It's a spiritual people. So in 9, 10, and 11, Paul is going to, to carry this argument through. He's going to explain to us who this people of God is, how this people of God functions in God's redemptive plan. And it, without reading all of it, let me summarize, and then we'll, we'll look at the, the verses in question. Paul says that, the, that true Israel is Jew and Gentile, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And he uses the image of a tree. And he says, unbelieving Jews have been cut out of the tree, and believing Gentiles have been grafted in. And if God wants to graft a, a, a believing Jew back in, right, uh, one who's been cut out but now is believing and grafted back in, God will graft them back in. Uh, notice there's one tree. What is the one tree? You could say it's the one people of God, but why is the people of God one? Because Christ is, is our identity. 
there's, I, I don't mean to suggest that it's literally going to be this way at the judgment, that this will be our experience of it. But the practical effect of the, of the judgment is that there will be a whole crowd that Jesus and Matthew refers to as the goats standing on one side. And we, we typically, following Jesus' example there, imagine that on the other side are the sheep. But I think the reality is going to be far more like this, that on one side will be all the goats and on the other side will be just Jesus Christ. The judgment will be rendered against Christ and he will be found righteous. And that judgment will apply to all of the sheep. So Paul is in Romans 10, 11, and 12, Paul is reconciling these two things. He's explained to us how God has done it. There's one tree. There's one Jesus Christ. There's one salvation for Jew and Gentile. And you may be a Jew and be a part of the tree. You may be a Gentile and be a part of the tree. God is is grafting in and cutting out. But listen to what Paul says. He's also said to us that what God is doing in history by taking the, the gospel to the Gentiles is to make the Jews jealous. So the gospel goes to the Jews... They largely reject it. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. They accept it. And Paul says, this is to make the Jews jealous so that they will believe. And look at how he brings that imagery and that explanation to a conclusion. He says, um, I'm trying to find the verses. Hold on just a second. I'm trying to find the, uh, in this way, all Israel shall be saved. Verse 26. There it is. So look at verse 25. We're in Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. So Paul acknowledges that this is difficult stuff, right? A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's... That's an ethnic identity there. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. He's talking about Gentiles in the flesh. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. When he says all Israel will be saved, who's he talking about? The elect. Yeah, if you go back and read, Paul uses that very language, the elect. And he's, he's making the distinction ever since chapter 9, when he started to unpack this for us. The distinction was a spiritual people, the elect. And it, whether or not you are elect is not about your ethnic identity, whether or not you are a Jew or a Gentile. He's talking about the spiritual people. And it's, it's simple math, if you look at it. I say simple math, I don't mean to suggest that people who disagree are missing something simple. There are other ways to read this. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But it's the partial partial hardening has come upon Israel. It's a partial hardening, note. Not all of the, the Jewish people have rejected the gospel. It's a partial hardening until the Gentiles in the flesh have come in. Now let's pause. How many groups do we have? At the end, one, right? They're, they're coming into one tree. So there's a partial hardening that, that causes some to be cut out of the tree and some remain. 
And there is salvation among the Gentiles until all the Gentiles have been grafted in. You've got this one tree now that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And what is the ultimate result? In this way, all Israel will be saved. Israel, in the second instance there, is spiritual Israel. It's all of, the, all of those, to use Paul's image, who have been grafted into the tree or remained in it. The debate uh, is that many want to read this and say, all Israel will be saved, means that all Jews will be saved. And it's just a very difficult reading. It, it's not easy to come to that conclusion. Uh, in order to do that, You've got to believe that the fullness of the Gentiles aren't part of Israel. Because, see, God's not only bringing, making Israel jealous to bring Israel in. He's also bringing the Gentiles in, and they're not just a tool to make the Jews jealous. They are also themselves uh, the people of God. Yes? No, I, I, I see where you're going there, um, and it is. I mean, we're, I, I want to be clear. All of us are, are trying to read it faithfully, uh, and if it was just a slam dunk, one would hope most of us would be reading it the same way. So I don't mean to suggest that there's nothing here we need to explain ourselves, but I think the way we would explain, beginning in verse 28, is in the context of, of 9 through 11, not in the mere context of 25 through 28. He's still making the big picture point, right? Uh, some of the hardest passages in Romans are in these chapters, 9 through 11. Uh, Paul says things that are very difficult to, to figure out what he's saying. And, of course, all of us take comfort in the fact that Peter thought it was difficult, too. Yeah. So that's no with within our own tradition, there is a debate. So if if this is the big picture, if if there's one tree that is the people of God, and there are limbs being cut out and limbs being grafted in, and that one tree is Jew and Gentiles, everyone who believes, uh, and God has cut out some limbs, grafted in others in order to make, and I'm mixing Paul's metaphors here, but in order to make the first set of limbs jealous so that they will see and believe, the question is, and I think we can all agree that that much is true. Even the dispensationalist is willing. They don't like the one people of God part of it, but they, they're willing to go there. The question is, uh, is there some future massive influx of Jewish people into the gospel. Um, and within our own tradition, there's no fixed answer. Um, I can tell you, if I were to tell you, that I believe that these verses teach that there's going to be some massive uh, revival among the Jews for the gospel. 
I would not be out of bounds. Yeah. But that second half of 28, that regard election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What does that beloved mean? Right? Because you're saying, okay, so regard election, and because they're forefathers, these people now who are apparently disobedient, that seems to be his call to these ethnic Jews who are disobedient, are beloved. So what does that beloved mean? Is that kind of like, you know, children of the covenant who are not necessarily, have not professed faith, but still benefit from being part of the church? Yeah, I don't think I would probably make it any more complicated than they are beloved. That is, they are elect. They, they are the beloved of God. They belong to him. Whether in time they are regenerate at that moment or not, that is their eternal destiny. Yeah. Um, but again, it doesn't answer the question if that's going to be future or present, whether it's every Jew who's alive or it's just some number of them. Because the all Israel above, we've got to decide. Does that mean all of ethnic Israel at some given point in history? Does it uh, include all of ethnic Israel throughout history? Uh, or maybe it's not a reference to ethnic Israel at all. Maybe all Israel is, all, is the fullness of the Gentiles together with all of those who believe uh, from, from the Jewish people, right? Uh, and so as regards election, they are beloved, for the sake of their forefathers. Uh, I personally would rejoice if there was some future massive revival among the Jews for the gospel. How could we do anything but? I hope it happens. Um, I don't think this passage necessitates that understanding. I think the, the, the Jewish people who are being made jealous and coming in are streaming in right now. It's already happening, uh, and it will continue to happen until Christ comes again. And on that last day, when Christ comes again, all of the elect, Jew and Gentile, will be saved. All Israel. And this is the means by which God is accomplishing that. So this is the, the passage, one of the passages, uh, that is a key passage in the discussion. Um, again, I'll leave you with this. We're, we're past time. Uh, the modern nation-state of Israel is not the fulfillment of any specific prophecy made in Scripture. Um, nor would it be consistent with how God has worked throughout history to establish a people that he, he calls his own and identifies with personally that are atheists, socialists, not that you can't be a Christian or socialist, I probably have to be careful about that, but terrorists. Listen, I, I support the nation-state of Israel in many, many ways, right? I'm very supportive. But there are indisputable, objective facts about how they established the, the modern nation state of Israel. None of it consistent with the way God has ever worked in history in a particular redemptive way. Is God sovereign over all things? Of course he is, right? And he's used many terrible things in history to accomplish his purposes. But that doesn't mean that they ought to be celebrated, embraced, or somehow then, you know, good things. Uh, and so we don't believe that the modern nation state of Israel is the people of God. Uh, the church is the people of God, filled with Jew and Gentile who are believing. Uh, and that is the only people of God in the world today. So uh, we're, we're a little past. I'm happy to hang out and ask questions uh, after I close in prayer. And if you have a child down the hallway... 
please do me the solid of running and grabbing your child as quickly as you can so that I don't hear about it from our uh, long-suffering, uh, I'm the one they're long-suffering, not your children, um, long-suffering children's workers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, that you have indeed taught us by your word that we are Israel, uh, that you have uh, people Jew and Gentile throughout history, that, uh, that you have called to yourself, uh, who by your spirit hear the voice of their shepherd and follow him. We thank you that you've numbered us among that people. We know that there was nothing we did to deserve it, uh, that it was not even peering down the hallways of the future that caused you to choose us, but that, Father, we have only ever had any value whatsoever because you have made us and you have called us your own. We thank you that you've done so, and we pray that we would have a heart for those who have not yet heard and believed, that like Anna, we would turn and tell everyone about the, the amazing work that you have done and are doing to save your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.